The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this uh, week. We've got a brand new topic today. We've got actually a topic that was uh, suggested uh, by a an email that Jim has gotten. I don't know if they suggested it specifically for an EDU show, but they asked a question that we felt would make a nice EDU show, probably a question that a lot of people might have out there that they're curious about, which you know, obviously makes a great topic for the show. So that's kind of where that came from. Jim's going to uh, bring us that email shortly. He's still out and about traveling, so he'll sound a little different as he broadcasts from his Airbnb. Um, heard that his neighbor has a loud car and the walls are quite thin, so um, we'll hope that they don't fire that thing up while we're on the show. But if they do, I hope everybody understands. We'll we'll make the best adjustments that we can. So, uh, Jim, oh, I need to bring in Jim right away, though, because I need to find out if he ever figured out about the uh, the castle, right? We've all been waiting to hear about the castle. Um, and he swore he was going to go get a selfie in front of the castle. We'll have to see if he came through or not. Jim, did you? Was that my cue? That's your cue. What about the castle? I have, I have no castle selfie. I'm going on Friday. Okay. So it is Friday. coming. It is coming. Well, okay. first of all, I found out the castle is only open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You can't even get in front of it for a selfie with it unless it's open? I have no idea. I would assume oh. the Black Knight, none shall pass, will be guarding it. Maybe. And if anybody knows that none shall pass, you too went to school, the college, in the 1980s. I can guarantee you. Do you, do you get the none shall pass reference? Isn't this probably a Monty Python thing, right? Monty Python, Search for the Holy Grail, the Black Knight. Remember the Black Knight was God in the bridge and they were trying to cross? None shall pass. And I don't remember that scene specifically, but I have seen the movie. Yeah, the Black Knight, well, he got his arm cut off and his other arm. Oh, that, I remember that leg. part now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and all was, his legs are cut yeah. off and he's just there. And he's right. like, come over here and I'll bite you in the ankle or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I yes. don't know. No, I do remember that now. Thanks, thanks for adding that. 
that extra <laughs> clarity. <laughs> well, I, I assume if I went to the castle before mm-hmm. Friday, the Black Knight would mm-hmm. be, there, be there, telling yeah. me none shall pass. Yeah, it's probably not worth wasting the trip if he's going to be there. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to have to fight him either. So I will wait till Friday. And uh, normally we record on Fridays, folks, but this week we are going to be recording on Thursday, the, the Q&A show. So everyone will have to patiently wait till the following week to hear how my trip to the castle went. But I definitely will take a selfie and uh, post it in our upcoming newsletter in front of the, the castle. And if the Black Knight is there, I'll ask if he will pose with me as well. Beautiful. Can't wait. All right. Okay, so back to the task at hand, which is the EDU show of the Retirement IRA show. Today we got, which I think is a good question. It's going to allow us to kind of go in a direction that we hadn't chatted about in a while and run down many of various rabbit holes. Um, This is totally unscripted, this show, as most people know. I did send Chris this question, which is very rare, Chris, for you to get it ahead of time. I sent it to him ahead of time because he had to pull some annuity quotes from our uh, software program that he knows how to use and Greg knows how to use, but yours truly doesn't really know how to use. But he had to get these quotes for me. And I think you can see, Chris, with this, we haven't even chatted about what we're going to talk about. I'm not even sure what the annuity quotes came in at, but we can definitely easily talk an hour or more on this topic and just give people ideas of of how this strategy works. And we're going to roll this in on future shows as well, utilizing bond ladders for covering income shortage. This is a question on using a SPIA to cover an income shortage, hence the need for annuity quotes. And I had to send this email to Chris so he could pull the correct quotes from software that I don't know how to use. But we are getting a lot of questions on utilizing bond ladders, utilizing fixed indexed annuities, which Wade Fow has been a proponent of recently. Um, and then uh, tips ladders are a big proponent of someone who disagree with Ray, Ray, uh, Wade uh, on using fixed indexed annuities. And all the while, as I'm looking at this, and I mentioned this when we did the series of shows where Alan Roth, who's a big proponent of tips ladders, uh, had issues with Wade, who seems to be a proponent of utilizing fixed indexed annuities. Nowhere in there is there an approach, again, similar to our approach It all revolves around trying to first determine what your quote-unquote withdrawal rate or safe withdrawal rate, if you want to use that word in front of withdrawal rate, what your safe withdrawal rate is going to be. As you're going to see with this listener, she gave us an example of what she wants as income. I'm not sure if she's basing it on uh, a safe withdrawal rate or not. I, I believe she is, as you see when I read her her email in a second. But when you, when you listeners uh, start listening to these shows, which we'll be doing uh, over the coming weeks, I hope to be doing more shows on this because we're getting questions on bond ladders. We're getting questions on fixed index annuities. We got this question on utilizing a SPIA. What are you going to cover your income for the guaranteed income? How should you do it? And do we consider a tips ladder guaranteed income? In a roundabout way, I would say yes. 
Is it a strategy that we believe in? You'll have to listen to our shows in the future when we record them to find the answer to that question. But we're just trying to give you ideas to think of. We're not proponents of any one strategy over another. I do believe passionately, though, in covering your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses with what we call secure income. We'll talk on another show, because we've talked in the past what secure income is, but we do believe passionately in it. And I know all you do-it-yourselfers, you love managing your portfolios, but please understand part of the reason why I have this approach, why I believe so passionately in this approach. It's because as you age, your ability to understand financial concepts will diminish. I know we like to think it's always going to happen to someone else. It's never going to happen to you. You're going to be the Warren Buffett or the, don't tell me his name, don't tell me his name, Charlie Munger. Very nice. Did I get it? Yes. Is that right? Excellent. You're right, yeah. Wow. Pull that out of nowhere. <clears throat> I know you might think you are going to be them who, and I think both of them are approaching 100, and they're still doing this. I don't think they're doing it to the degree they were doing it in their 40s and 30s and 50s. And we all like to think we may be the next Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger as far as our ability to understand financial concepts. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us, not everyone is Warren Buffett. If they, Could you imagine if everybody had his brilliance? It doesn't work that way, folks. You all know that. And part of the reason that I am so passionate on this, we want you to spend on fun. That's the approach Chris and I take. We want you to spend on fun. And we feel the safe withdrawal rate and covering based on a withdrawal rate, your expenses, unnecessarily limits you on spending on fun, especially early in retirement, during what we call the go-go years. And the go-go phase for everyone is going to vary. It's going to depend on your health, your age when you retire. Clearly, if you retire at 58 and you run marathons and you're healthy and in shape, you might have a far longer go-go phase than someone who retires at 68 and eats <clears throat> competitively eats Twinkies and doesn't exercise. They may have a shorter go-go period. But the point is... We want people to identify, to see into their portfolio. We, we term it the see-through portfolio. Identify what you can in your, your assets, whether you have 500000 saved or $5 million saved. What money in that can you spend on fun? And then we encourage you to spend it on fun with the majority of it being spent in your go-go phase. That's just what we believe in. And in order to do that, you have to explicitly promise the older you, you took care of their minimum dignity floor, that they don't have to worry, and that as they age and may not understand financial concepts, or as they may pass away and they're going to leave a spouse 
who's not into investing at all in charge. Or they may age and need help, and a child or someone else acting under an agent of a POA is going to step in. If you leave them a complicated scenario of tips ladders or, or, or investment withdrawals or asset allocation and efficient frontier and all these things that you may look at in your 40s, 50s, and 60s and fully understand, Someone may be stepping in trying to do that for you and be totally confused or do it wrong. Or you, Chris, because you always point out Texas Tech. What's one of the other issues if you are going to try to manage minimum dignity floor, explicitly promise the older you you're going to take care of this, but you're not going to do it with secure income. You're going to manage it. What's one of the other issues that people can run into? Well, the challenging part, in addition to you know all of us at different rates declining in our our uh, financial IQ, we might call it our ability to process things that have to do with numbers and and relate to the finances in our lives, our confidence in our ability to do so does not decline with it. So we get trapped in this. We think we're all fine, but in reality, it's just not working. I think the same exact thing happens maybe with driving too your ability to drive safely. I know lots of people that are are perfectly confident that they're still as good a driver as they were 20 years ago. And by any objective measure, they are clearly not, but they don't see it. They don't uh, perceive it that same way. And it's the same type of thing with you managing your finances. And I think you're doing yourself a favor if you simplify things for the older you or the older not you who's helping you uh, take care of these things by taking an approach for something as fundamental as the minimum dignity floor expenses that uh, those being covered with, with simple, secure income that will you know, last as long as you do. I love that metaphor. I, I, I use metaphors all the time. Metaphor is the right word, right? Or is it an analogy? Yeah. No, that's good. Metaphor. I metaphor. Good enough. I nailed it. I'm two two. Charlie Munger and metaphor. I, I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> In this okay, case, the way I used it was probably more. Folks, thank you very much. Let's go and move on. The, the way I used it today was probably a little more like an analogy, but, but – uh, oh. Those are, you know, related terms. They're, they're in the same ballpark. Now you're robbing <laughs> my thunder. You're just taking away my sorry, thunder. Here. Sorry. Okay. But anyways, I do love that analogy of driving because so many, we see it with our parents. My father finally gave up his, his license and he had to admit to himself and to everyone he can't drive. And he did that a couple of years ago. Uh, I used to drive with him. It was scary. I didn't like it. Or I would follow him. And, and I used to jokingly say he drove by feel. And, oh, nope, I'm too close to that car. I need to back up. And he was too close to the car because he probably scraped it. We see that constantly. <clears throat> and that's a great way of putting it, Chris. I, I like that way. And that's one of the reasons we like to fund minimum dignity for explicitly with lifetime guaranteed secure income. Social Security, pension, and income annuity. And this ties into the question we got. 
So we're going to address other ways of covering secure income. But today, it's going to be with this annuity. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So the email came in in June. So it came in a while ago. And I want to see if they gave a hint. Well, I, you got the email ahead of time. So did they give a hint? I don't think she gave a hint, did she? Uh, let me pull it back up and see. No. You sent it to I me. Did. I don't see a hint. Nope. Okay, no hint. They're a hintless one. Uh, so I have no idea what state they're from. They don't even show their state. But uh, we got some decent hints recently, Chris. So I'm anxious to get to them. They're really creative uh, hints coming in. I, I liked it. I haven't gotten any of them right, but uh, good, good hints coming in. All right, this one, folks, begins. Dear Jim and Chris, I know you dislike the 4% rule, but I hope you will understand what I am trying to ask. We probably need to pause there. I don't think we inherently dislike it, Chris. It's just not an approach to retirement that we prefer. I I think the 4% rule can work for some people, especially people who are looking to maximize death assets. Maximize your portfolio. You want to be the richest person in the graveyard. You want to maximize an inheritance limiting your spending is one of the best ways to maximize what you will give at death. What I don't like about the 4% rule or any quote-unquote safe withdrawal rule, whether now it's being bantered about, it could be 4.7, it could be 5, I recently heard, uh, not heard, but read, uh, 3.8, I heard, 2.7 a few years ago that Harvard came out with. There's all these different new rules of what the safe withdrawal rate is. What we don't like about it as a firm and, and as planners is, again, it seems to unnecessarily constrain spending on fun. It's going to tell you that you can only spend a certain percentage of your portfolio, and that has to go to non-discretionary items first. So your minimum dignity floor needs, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. And anything that happens to be left over, that's all you can spend on fun. And if that's not enough that year to do what you consider to fund, you've got to, quote unquote, save those dollars and wait. So it might take you two, three, four years to, quote unquote, save up enough dollars to go do something really big. I don't like that approach because I saw too many times people passing away. And you all know my story. I don't have to get into it, but I shouldn't be here. Now it's official. It's November of 2023. I nearly died November 20th, 2020. Everyone knows that. Your life can change in an instant. I didn't die and I'm not paralyzed. That's wonderful, but I should be. And it can happen that quick. And I just don't like telling people who might have amassed whether it's $500,000 or $5 million. Oh, it's going to take you four years, five years, six years to save up enough money to go do that bucket list item. So let's just wait patiently because you can't take out more than 4%. And I also feel the AUM advisors, they love the 4% withdrawal rule because it allows them 
to put you into some type of model portfolio that's going to sway to you up and down is designed specifically for you and your needs and your concerns. And, and we're going to review it with you quarterly or semi-annually or annually. And this is designed just for you. That's all BS, folks. Behind the scenes, you're in some type of pre-designed model. I can guarantee it. And it's so easy for them to be able to charge their uncapped AUM fee from it. But as we pointed out recently through that actuary that we were chatting about on two shows, that AUM fee is robbing you of a heck of a lot of money. So for all these reasons, I'm not a big fan of the 4% rule. I think people should instead be told, out of your assets, we feel after we walk you through these steps, you can spend this much on discretionary items. Why do you have to wait? My dad's 89 years old, lives in a nursing home, needs assistance every day now. He still is questionable if he had LTC coverage, if he would qualify now or not. If he did have LTC coverage, I would be applying for it. I think he would at this point qualify. After I went home and visited him two weeks ago, I think he's at the point where he could qualify. But it's questionable. However, I do think within another 6 to 12 months, he definitely would qualify for LTC. He definitely cannot do one of the six ADLs. He, It's debatable if he can do one of the other five. I don't want to get into it because it's my dad's situation. But it's that close, Chris. I don't think I shared that with you. Anyways, folks, my point is at 89, he's not doing much on fun. What would an 89-year-old in his situation need a lot of fun for anymore? Instead, he likes the memories that he has. We just feel People should not have to unnecessarily curtail spending on fun. Anything you want to add on that? Because I can go on and on. Yeah, and I think I think specifically it's it's unnecessarily curtail spending on early fun, which we value. Early fun to us is far more important to pursue, protect than later fun. For all the reasons, one as you age, it just increases the likelihood you're not going to do. Not uh, everything that you were, you know, you enjoyed as a younger person, um, but not do as many of those things because some stuff's going to be off your list. You just can't physically do it anymore. You're not interested in doing it. It's too takes too much effort to do it. It's so too much of a bother to do it. Where you are plenty happy to do those same things when you're in your sixties, when you're in your eighties, you're choosing not to. You're doing other types of fun things, which. Once you start checking off the fun that takes uh, f- you know f- much physical exertion to do uh, and, and time and planning and all those types of things, uh, what I see in people's list of fun is just a lot less expensive stuff. It's not that they're not having fun and enjoying themselves. It's just the type of things that are not nearly as expensive as the things that they might want to do early. So when you sacrifice or, or, or restrict your early fun, you might not ever get those things back. You might not be able to do them later. So we we assign a high, high importance to doing that. So our approach is designed specifically to protect your ability to go do those things when possible. You know, you obviously have to have enough resources to do it. But um, 
assuming you do, certain approaches will restrict people that could do it from doing it. And that's what we're trying to avoid with our approach. Exactly. And again, to borrow from my dad, he still has fun at 89. I kid you not. He looks forward to watching the Patriots lose now, but he still looks forward to watching the New England Patriots and still complains to high heaven about them now. He's, he, he did tell me, though, Chris, he says, it's not as fun without Brady. <laughs> so he, he's still having fun, but not as much fun. But he actually goes to church now. This man never went to church in his life. I even joked with him when I was out there. Did When you stuck your hand in the holy water, did it stop bubbling and smoke come out? He's like, oh, son, please. I'm like, you've never been to church before. But he is in a religious community home, and Mm -hmm. he actually told me he likes going to church. Mm -hmm. And he takes his wheelchair, and he wheels himself, uh, but he goes to church, goes to church on Sundays. And the man never went to church in all the years I knew him. Good for him. Exactly. But it's a different type of fun, is your point. Mm -hmm. They have sing-alongs. I I. They have no idea what a room full of 80, 90, 100-year-olds sound like when they're doing sing-alongs. He goes to sing-alongs. He goes to bingo. And he mm-hmm. just that's what they do as fun. Okay, so enough of that. It's not, again, total dislike. We just don't like it. I, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but anyways. Okay, so it continues. It occurred to me. Most financial planners are treating your entire retirement portfolio like it was an annuity when they use the 4% rule. Your quote-unquote annuitized payment is 4% of your starting value, and it will be increased each year by a fixed cost-of-living adjustment. For purposes of this email, let's say 3%. So she's not too far off. This is a, a female George. We'll call her Georgette. Georgette is not far off from how the safe withdrawal rate works. You're going to have one big portfolio. You're not going to break it up. You're not going to utilize bucketing. You're not going to use uh, positioning, which is a bucketing-like approach that I termed and, and use. You're just going to have one big portfolio You're going to withdraw your 4% or whatever percentage point you deem to be your quote-unquote safe withdrawal rate, whether that is going to be 4.7, 5, 3.7, 2.8, choice is yours. You're going to withdraw that every year, and then you are going to adjust it for CPI inflation. She's saying, hey, for purposes of this email, let's just assume that inflation is 3%. Is that how you interpreted her email? I know you have this email in front of you. Yeah, and I was going to point that out as you read through that. The the standard approach is to actually use CPI to adjust your distributions rather than you know announcing to yourself a fixed rate that you're going to hold, that you're going to stick to throughout retirement. But obviously for you know, I, I know where this is going because you sent me the email in this particular case uh, for purposes of, of her in investigation, <laughs> we'll call it. Uh, we need to assume some type of inflation rate moving forward, and th- you know, three percent is what she chose. So, one thing I do want to mention, though, Chris, because th- those are good points you made. We do want to point out to this listener: it's I, I see where she's going, saying essentially it's annuitized, and she did put that in quotation marks, folks, yeah. because if you are living off of a safe withdrawal rate. You can't spend those dollars beyond 
your safe withdrawal rate. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't put money aside and say, I'm going to live off of uh, 4% of this plus CPI inflation every year. And, oh, I'm going to take another 100000 from it and go do something with it. Even though you haven't given those dollars in a safe withdrawal rate to an insurance company and told them to no longer give you access to those dollars, instead give me income for the rest of my life, even though you haven't truly annuitized it in that sense, she is correct in the sense those dollars are dedicated, Chris, and you can do nothing with them but get the 4% initial withdrawal rate and the future CPI adjustments. So I understand what she means. Yeah, it's a self-imposed annuity, essentially, uh, with without a third party backing it if it runs out. That's essentially what you're doing when you when you approach it this way. It's a self-imposed annuity payment that could end up with your beneficiaries getting a bunch left over or you running out because there's nobody backing it if that happens, if things fall apart on you, if you live long enough uh, and, and maybe inflation's high enough and your, your portfolio performance isn't high enough and you know all the factors that can lead you to running out. There's no third party backing it. So that's what makes it different than a true product that we call an annuity. Right. And there's no mortality credits either. True. You you are essentially the yep. lone zebra on the Serengeti the and not in yep. a herd. Yep. Okay. So she continues. Mm-hmm. What I think would be intuitive, excuse me, instructive for your listeners would be to compare this strategy to an actual annuity in the context of covering a minimum dignity floor shortage. So, for example, let's say I am a 70-year-old female and I have a minimum dignity floor need of $90,000 a year. I think that's a little bit high, Chris, but well within a range that we see. Mm-hmm. I think most MDF shortages are, what, 60 to 70? Or am I off base there? I do, Just MDF itself, not the shortage, but the MDF in some parts of the country, I think could easily be 90. Not, not everywhere though. I'd, I'd say a single person, it's probably more like 60, 70 is the average, but 90 is within the range that I see, certainly. Right, depending on where mm-hmm. she lives. And she yep. doesn't indicate her state. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. I mean, just imagine if you live in a nice house in some of the states with high property taxes, you might have $15,000 a year just in property taxes, which are going to be part of your minimum dignity floor. And that alone would explain why you're paying 90 instead of 75. Right. Okay, folks. So she continues. And let's assume this female turns on their social security. I'm guessing at 70 folks, because she's saying a 70 year old and will earn 50,000 a year, leaving an MDF shortage of 40,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Now let's remember, Chris and I love Social Security. Social Security is an annuity. So for all you do-it-yourselfers out there who hate annuities, you've got a big-ass annuity. It's called Social Security. Social Security is an annuity. And it is the only annuity that is inflation-adjusted tied to CPI. You can't get those anymore. And it's one of the reasons we like people delaying to 70 on their Social Security, because you're essentially buying something you can't buy in the private market anymore. 
When you delay to 70, you're going to start spending your own assets because you're not uh, collecting Social Security yet. That spending that you're doing is essentially buying a future income annuity tied to CPI. Again, we're going to be talking about um, uh, Alan Roth and, and Wade Fow and their thoughts. And people have been asking us, what do we think of using tips like Alan Roth does? And I have great respect for both those men. And I think both of them are right. They're just never going to, I think, agree with each other. The, the issue or, or one of the reasons rather that Alan Roth likes using tips is they are truly adjusted for inflation. Well, so social security. And you can't get that with most individual annuities anymore. After 2000, uh, excuse me, 2020, uh, Principal was the last insurance company offering CPI adjusted single premium median annuities. You haven't been able to buy them for the last three years, and I don't think they'll ever come back. So Social Security, and I think you would agree, Chris, being the Social Security guru, is probably one of the best annuities out there. It's very unique, for sure. It has features, if you want to call them that, that don't apply to any other annuity uh, out there. Uh, but the core of it, where it's paying you a lifetime stream of income inflated by CPI, so true retail price inflation, is very rare. And, and that alone makes it powerful. Extremely valuable. Yep. It's just mm -hmm. tremendously valuable. We love Social Security, if you can't figure that out. Okay. Now, so that being said, it needs some it needs some love. It needs some adjustments. It needs to be dealt with in the and long haul. And they will fix it. And they will right, fix it. Yeah. And I'm predicting now the retirement age will be pushed to 70 from 67, but not for anyone most likely listening to this podcast unless you are 30 or under. I don't think so. I 30 to 40, you might be in the gray area, but I think if you're under 30, you're going to have your uh, age pushed out, just like Chris and I were. When we were in our 20s, Chris, and we probably totally ignored it, they pushed our retirement age from 65 to 67. We didn't even, I didn't even know that they were passing this in my 20s. Um, I see that happening again, and that will go a long way to solving Social Security's shortage. Mm -hmm. We don't want to put fear into our listeners' head. To me, if you are 50 and above and definitely 60 and above, they are not going to go after your Social Security. You are going to get what you were promised, I personally feel. I do feel the last 15% that's not taxed will also be taxed. There's 15% of Social Security that's still, quote-unquote, tax-free. I think they're going to drag that in. Okay, that's neither here nor there. Let's go back to her question. She's now saying, hey, with this calculation, I'm still $40,000 a year short. Mm -hmm. So she said, let's assume I have a million dollars to set aside. She doesn't say that's all she has. She's just using round numbers, I assume. I don't know. She doesn't share anything about her situation. But her math makes sense. If you have less than a million, don't stop listening to the podcast. Keep listening and learn the concepts. Just apply your dollar amounts to it. And there's no need to email me that the number was too big or too small. Just follow the concepts, not the dollars. The concepts don't change. So she said, using the 4% rule, 
I could try to cover that minimum dignity floor shortage by setting aside one million of my dollars and withdrawing $40,000 per year from it. And then she puts in parentheses with a 3% COLA each year. This might be where she's misunderstanding the theory behind the safe withdrawal rate. You don't limit yourself to a 3% COLA. You limit yourself or apply a CPI COLA. So a few years ago, about five, six, seven years ago, there was some zero years on increase on Social Security where they said there, there was no inflation. So under the safe withdrawal rate, you would not have increased your dollars those years. But last year, I think it was last year, inflation was allegedly at nine something percent you got as an increase in Social Security. You would apply that nine. You wouldn't limit yourself to three. So under the safe withdrawal rate, you increase your four percent initial withdrawal, in this case, $40,000, you increase that 40000 by inflation. If inflation is higher than three, in her example, she would increase it more than three. If it was lower than three, she would increase it less than three. If it was negative, I think theoretically, you're supposed to cut it. But that's how the safe withdrawal rate works. So far, so good, Chris, or did I misspoke? Speak. No, I mean, there's and there's various applications of the safe withdrawal rate. So, so the, the original one that Bill Benjamin designed was based on actual uh, CPI adjustments uh, instead. And 2023 was that big old 8.7% COLA. uh, It wasn't quite nine, but it was, it was very healthy. We'll call it uh, compared to previous years, cost of living adjustments. And there are other approaches, and we're not getting into them. There's the guardrail mm-hmm. approach and the floor and ceiling approach. You can Google those if you want to read about them. And they're designed, they're, they're much more dynamic, much more complicated. And again, that's the issue to me with the safe withdrawal rate and then the guardrail approach and the the floor and ceiling approach. They're very complicated. And as you begin to age, are you going to remember these complicated rules and when to apply them or not? Or if you're working with an advisor, is that advisor going to be around for your entire retirement? Or are they going to pass it on to someone else? Or, or are they going to understand the complicated rules? We, we try to practice KISS, keep it simple, stupid. And you can look at those other approaches that all borrow off of the safe withdrawal rate, but they try to, to manipulate it a bit with uh, God reels or floors and ceilings. Okay. So she said, using the 4% rule, I could set my minimum dignity floor by putting a million dollars aside, 40000 a year, and adjust it for, she calls it 3% COLA each year. She said, or I could purchase an annuity that will pay me 40000 per year with an automatic 3% COLA. She's right on both of those. She could put a million dollars aside take 4% and adjust it for inflation or adjust it for 3% standard if she wanted. There's no rule that says you must increase your withdrawal by CPI if she wants to limit herself to 3%. And in years where 
uh, CPI is less than three, she still gives herself a 3% raise. And in years when CPI is greater than three, she still gives herself a 3% raise. There's no saying you can't do that. It's just the standard approach doesn't do that. But she is right. Since 2020, you could not buy a single premium immediate annuity that would adjust for CPI. You must choose a stated amount. And I believe now, Chris, we used to talk about New York Life, let you go up to 10%. Isn't that now just 6%? New York Life might even be lower than that, but there's other companies going as high as 6 Yeah, so far right now, the, the companies we usually pull quotes from, the maximum SPIA um, built-in, I hate to call it a cost of living adjustment, but it's the inflation rate on the payments. Uh, is six and a half percent max, and there's, uh, as far as I know, only one company out of the list that we utilize that that offers it that high. Where previously New York Life was still doing uh, up to nine until earlier this year. So, or I'm sorry, up to ten until earlier this year. But uh, what is New York Life at now? Do you know? I think their max is five now. Max at five. They, they okay. really cut the, cut the cap, and I. Didn't hear any. Well, not that they owe me an explanation, but I haven't read anywhere what the what the explanation is for that, other than a business decision. If there's any New York Life agents, dedicated New York Life agents, uh, New York Life, even though we're not a dedicated New York Life agent, does let our firm and, and any other insurance agent, not just us, uh, sell their spears. But if there's a New York Life agent listening to this, if did they give you guys an exam um, a reason why they did that? that I don't for the life of me understand it Chris because actuarially if they know how much they have to increase and they know the the annuity pool and how long people are going to live does it make it any easier if it's just five rather than ten I don't get I'm it. guessing maybe- that the um, some of the derivative strategies they were using were getting too expensive to protect against that size or something I was thinking maybe because of the cost. There is a cost, mm-hmm. folks. The higher the automatic payment increase, and Chris is right, it's not really a COLA adjustment. It's just an automatic payment ratchet. The cost of that annual ratchet is expensive, and you had to put more and more dollars aside to get the same amount of income. If you wanted no cost of living increase, you would put a much lower amount into the annuity than if you wanted a 3 or a 6 or a 9 or a 10. The higher your automatic increase, the more money it would take to get the same initial dollar amount. I'm guessing, and I think, because the cost was too high, no one was buying it, and maybe they stopped at five because that's about what people offered. I, that, I don't know. I was kind of hoping that they heard a rumor that uh, some new medical breakthrough was about to come out and we were all going to live a lot longer, so they <laughs> knew they couldn't honor that promise anymore. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's that, but if you are a New York Life agent and and they gave you a legitimate reason of why they were doing this, because we're not agents, so they don't give us the time of day. We have access to your pricing, but that's about it. Um, let us know. I'm just curious. Okay. So her question, mm-hmm. what would the annuity in option two cost me? From what I understand, it should be less than a million. Let me pause there, folks. It should be. She's right. Why? When you buy a SPIA, you are locking in current interest rates. You also receive 
a portion of your own money back, plus interest rates, plus the magical one, Chris, which is... Mortality credits. Mortality credits. In other words, annuity companies who price SPIAs with safe withdrawal, excuse me, withdrawal rate living benefits, which we'll cover on future shows, you don't really get mortality credits with them. But in a SPIA, you definitely get mortality credits. New York Life, because we were talking about them, but any insurance company, honestly, out of their annuity pools, we've said this before, they can tell you with an uncanny degree of accuracy, everyone buying in this annuity pool, and they might open that pool for three months, six months, 12 months, whatever, or to a certain amount of people in the pool, anyone in that pool, they're going to be able to tell you what, Chris, with really good accuracy. How many out of that pool are going to die in a particular year? And on average, how long are the people in that pool going to live? But what can't they tell you? They can't name the individual people in the pool who <laughs> exactly. are actually going to be alive or dead in any given year. But they don't care about that. You don't, you're, you're a number to them. You're just part of the pool. And they can manage their exposure to that pool very, very effectively. Now, when SPIAs are priced, they know each year who's going to die and whose money can now go to other people. And then they use very sophisticated software and can actually price an annuity payment to include the mortality credits right away. Unlike the old Tontines, which since 1920 have not been available in this country, where the actual people who were still alive each year got to share in the dollars of the people who died. Tontines are not allowed. They, they've been outlawed. Uh, and Chris and I feel and I haven't researched it enough, uh, but we feel it was honestly be, because of the fear or maybe the very real fear that people were in the annuity pools were put or could uh, be, be targeted. That, gee, if all these people are dead, I get everything. Um, and Tontines, that's how Tontines work. They would look each year uh, on, on who's alive and the payments would get divided by them. And if people kept dying... Um, unnaturally, but uh, you're, you're one of the few people left in the pool, uh, all of a sudden you're getting all the money. So I think that's one of the reasons Tontines were outlawed, but I could be wrong on that. But SPIAs borrow from the Tontine approach and instead try to figure out how much they can give you in mortality credits each year. So she's right. Because of mortality credits... It should cost less than a million dollars to get the full 4%. Mm -hmm. And that's what she was wondering. She then ends with, I hope what I wrote is understandable. It is. That's why we're answering it. But I think it would be a valuable lesson for your listeners because it shows that an annuity can cover a minimum dignity for shortage with less money than trying to self-fund it yourself thereby leaving you more money available, and she put in all caps with an exclamation point, fun. And she's kind of spot on here. She's saying, look, I could put a million dollars aside and withdraw my 4% or 40000 and increase it 3% a year. She's fixated on doing that fixed rate of inflation. 
Or I could buy an annuity and I think it would cost me less. And I could get the same 40,000 year adjusted for inflation. Chris, you got the quotes, not me. You can take over now. Walk people through now what you found and the different quotes you ran. Mm -hmm. Because yes, listener, this listener is correct. So uh, Jim forwarded me the email ahead of time, uh, which rarely happens, but uh, he wanted me to pull these quotes. And so today, as of uh, November 7th of 2023, when we are recording this, a 70-year-old female. uh, Chris, can I just interrupt? Sure. Don't name the insurance companies here because these are actual quotes. Oh, I know. Okay. No problem. So a 70-year-old female that's looking for a $40,000 annuity payment each year, growing by 3% for as long as they shall live. An insurance company uh, highly rated. These were all A and A-plus rated insurance companies. The best quote that I received today was $620,000. So instead of a million dollars, devoting six twenty dollars uh, would generate that $40,000 a year forever not forever, for as long as she lives, um, providing longevity protection because it can't run out, assuming you trust the insurance company to uphold their promise. Uh, But you are handing over $620,000 to the insurance company, um, which some people are are uncomfortable with because they say, well, if I use my own million, uh, if something happens to me early, at least my kids get a whole bunch of money. Kids get what I don't use. So I did run a couple of modified quotes just to give people a sense. If you were particularly worried about that, you could still probably find, you know, be attracted to considering an annuity for this purpose is for the same annuity, but with an installment refund, which means they will, if she passes away before receiving back her premium that she paid, they will continue paying beneficiaries until that premium has been returned to a combination of her while she was alive and her beneficiaries. So in other words, somebody's going to get back the full premium uh, one way or another in the form of monthly or yearly payments over time. And that, that premium would be six ninety three. So in other words, be $73,000 more, but you would be assured that someone is going to keep receiving payments until some combination of you and your beneficiaries have gotten back through annual payments, the full 693. The other option that's common is what's called a cash refund, which is the same idea, but instead of just extending or continuing your payments until the premium has been repaid, they will pay you in one lump sum what is still owed of the original premium if you were to die before receiving back the premium that you paid. And that a very close quote to the installment refund that came in right at 700,000. So all three significantly lower than the million to set aside yourself. And while you would forego growth on that premium, that if you held it yourself and then died early would hopefully happen, no guarantee, you at least protect the premium itself and and wouldn't, quote, waste it if you died early, younger than average, and uh, uh, but still would have the protections of having lifetime guaranteed income guaranteed by the insurance company if you did live much, much longer 
than your premium would support normally, and you continue to receive payments. So everything's a trade-off, but I think this illustrates what she was hitting home about, which was if I'm going to have to set aside a million and leave it untouched, and that was the point you made earlier, if you set that aside, you can't also spend part of it for other things. You really need to consider that off limits as if you had handed it to an insurance company or someone else, it's gone for purposes of your spending. It needs to be there to generate that 40000 a year, increasing at 3% every year. Um, here you could do, you know, only hand over 700 leaving you with 300 for more go-go period fun um, and still have similar protections, maybe even more robust protections for your long-term minimum dignity floor because... Unlike the set aside of a million, which, although maybe unlikely, could still run out if you lived long enough, the annuity payments would not run out if you live too long because they are backed by the third-party deep-pocketed insurance company if you happen to win the genetic lottery and live to 105, 110, 115, which your million dollars may not support those huge distributions that are happening at that point with 3% growth from 70 to 100 that are happening in there. So um, trade-off, you know, trade-off situation here. So that was for a single. I know a lot of people out there are couples. So I did want to also run some quotes for a couple. And this would be for a man and woman married uh, 70 years old, Uh, a joint and survivor, 100% survivor annuity that pays $40,000 a year, every year growing at 3%. Instead of the 620 that a single female might be asked to pay in a premium, a couple, uh, just over 700 at 707 So it's a little more expensive, st- still much less than the million dollars. But again, that's a straight-up single life, not sorry, straight-up, that's a straight-up joint life annuity where if you both passed away young, you argue, you know, people would say you're leaving money on the table or you've enriched the insurance company because you didn't get all your money back. So I did the same thing I did on the single life for the female before I ran an installment refund quote and a cash refund quote. And those both came in about 760. So once again, much lower than the million dollar set aside and giving you joint protection for a man and woman each 70 years old. Um, on that $40,000 annuity payment. And with those installment or cash refunds, you're at least assured that you'll get back your premium. Your 760 is coming back in some form to you uh, and or beneficiaries if something happens to you and you pass before receiving back at least the premium itself. So I think those are enlightening. I think those hit at the heart of what she was trying to bring up here. And maybe she was already aware of what these quotes looked like. So this isn't a surprise to her. But maybe it was she just knew logically that the annuity should cost less than the million dollars set aside, which it clearly does. Um, and and uh, I think a lot of people are, are maybe surprised at how much less um, that it is. So... Jim, I, a couple I, of things that uh-huh. I would like to add there. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, the quotes, folks, would be different for a man alone. A single male uh, would get uh-huh. substantially, well, I don't say substantially, but a single male would get more or would have to put in less. So uh-huh. it was 620, if I remember correctly, uh-huh. for her as a single female. Yep. I bet you a single male would be somewhere between 550 and 580 somewhere around there. They would put in less because they live shorter. 
so they can get more. That's true. Um, and I'm just guessing off the top of my head. Part of the reason that there's a pricing difference as well when there's a joint life, the chances of two people with one of them living long beyond life expectancy is greater. So joint will always uh, cost more. Whereas in life insurance, which is the mirror opposite of a single premium median annuity, you all know because we talk about this a lot, a SGUL, a Survivorship Guaranteed Universal Life Policy, policy that we love for a variety of reasons when it fits for certain people. It always costs less to insure life insurance two lives than one. It costs less. Whereas a annuity, which is the opposite of life insurance, obviously costs more to insure two lives because an annuity is insurance. You're insuring the longevity of two lives. And there's a greater chance that one out of two will live longer than life expectancy. So those quotes should make perfect sense to you. The one thing that's missing is what would a man have to pay? And I think it would be less. I, I don't know if it would be as much less as what I said. Yeah, but I just ran it. <clears throat> it's 590. Oh, so I, I set up to 580. So I was off by 10 grand. That's not too bad. Um, so five ninety, thirty thousand dollars a year less. Excuse me, uh, lump sum less. But let's talk about this strategy now in greater depth. There's pros and cons to it. Mm -hmm. If Alan Roth were on this show, and I'm certainly not trying to speak for him or put words in his mouth, his fear, and one of the things that he and Wade were arguing about, his fear is that inflation is greater than even the 3% COLA that's automatic yep. in this listener's question. Yep. Because this 3% COLA will happen automatically. Your payments will increase 3% every year guaranteed forever or forever in the sense of how long you live. That's forever because as far as you're concerned, after you're dead, there ain't no more future. You're gone. So forever based on your life. His fear is that inflation is significantly higher than 3% in the future. That is a risk to this strategy. But some people will argue, well, wait a minute. You could protect from that risk in the sense it didn't cost a million dollars. It cost 620 or 590 let's just call it 600,000 we'll, we'll work with individual people not couples there's still $400,000 left over now this listener was astute and said she could then spend this on fun if she put a million dollars aside it's essentially quote unquote as she put in quotation marks annuitized she can't spend it she can't get at it it can leave an inheritance yes but it exposes her to sequence of return risk. It exposes her to outliving her money, and that could happen if the portfolio keeps dropping. She's getting older. She's now 78, 80, 83, 88, 90, 94. There's a 105-year-old woman in this nursing home on the floor that my dad's, I think he's smitten with her. I really do. Uh, I met her. He hugged her and gave her a little peck on the cheek. They like each other. She was dancing, folks. 105. Not with my dad. He's in a wheelchair. The 105-year-old woman, Chris, she's on a walker. And granted, 
imagine a 105-year-old woman on a walker just kind of bopping her body back and forth. But that was her dancing. Mm-hmm. I mean, she wasn't out there breakdancing on the floor. Don't get me wrong, folks. But she was moving with this walker. I was in awe. 105. It can happen. If you're going to be managing a million-dollar portfolio on a quote-unquote safe withdrawal rate adjusted for 3%, it's just complicated. You think the 105-year-old woman is going to be doing that? And it may not last to 105. The 4% withdrawal rate was not designed for 105-year-olds. Right. It was designed for 30 years. This would have taken her to 100. The issue with the safe withdrawal rate is when it's gone, it's gone, and it exposes you to sequence of return risk early in retirement. It exposes you during your go-go fun phase of having to worry about what the market is doing, what the sequences are, managing, paying attention to the economy and geopolitical politics. Whereas you have the annuity, you might worry about those things, but you tracking it as closely, Chris, you think? No, because you're getting a deposit every month, quarter, year, whatever, and it just happens. It doesn't, the money just shows up regardless of all those other external things going on. Exactly. But let's look at the strategy in greater depth. Maybe you don't want to spend it on fun. You got $400,000 left over. Remember, the male was five ninety, dollars the female was six dollars I'm just coming out at six hundred. You got $400,000 left over. You could put those dollars aside now and invest them aggressively. You've got your MDF covered. If your goal was $40,000 adjusted for 3% inflation, but you are worried that inflation in the future could exceed three. That 400000 can now be invested, and you don't need any damn bonds. Your SPIA is one big-ass bond, folks. It truly is. That's what you should view a SPIA as. It is a bond that is backed by a deep-pocketed third party that will guarantee it. But it is a bond. What do you think the insurance company is doing with those dollars? They're buying bonds with it. You're getting institutional man is institutionally priced, professionally managed bond without the interest rate risk. So why would you take that four hundred thousand left over and go buy a moderate portfolio with it? If you are truly going to earmark that four hundred thousand for the inflation risk that Alan Roth has and others like him, and I don't mean that derogatory. If if Bonds work for you. If tip ladders work for you, go for it. It's far more complicated, but go for it. But you could take that 400000 and invest it in a total stock market fund and just leave it there. And let me pause here. I shouldn't have said the name that I just said, and Chris is going to bleep it out, so you're going to hear a bleep fund. But what I'm saying is you could put it in a total stock market index fund without a specific name. You can choose whoever you want and just let that total stock market fund grow. And there's your inflation protection in the future that if it's averaging more, you now have 400,000 that's invested aggressively. Why? You got 600,000 in a bond. You still got a 60, 40 moderate portfolio. It's just that. The six, actually, you have a 60-40 moderately conservative portfolio, mm-hmm. but the 40% in stocks you're managing on your own, 
And you could, as you do it yourselfers who love indexing, and so do we. We are passive managers. You know that. You could put it in a total stock market equity index ETF if you want it. But there's other things you can do with it. You can spend it on fun. Or you could take that 400000 Chris, and now put it aside as an aging reserve for LTC needs. And you could leverage it, as we spoke about in the past, and we'll dedicate a couple of EDU shows on this. I'm working with Greg to put this together. I call it the hybrid-hybrid approach. We spoke about this before. Chris calls it the Michael Kitsis approach because he's the one who gave us the idea a decade ago about this. But you put the $400,000 aside... And you just take a little bit from that 400000 each year. It'll be between 1% and 2% as a single person. So four dollars to $8,000 a year you take from it, and you buy a traditional LTC policy with it that might provide you a six dollars to $800,000 pool initially of long-term care coverage growing at 3%. Most LTC will grow at 3 or 5. So 3% in this hypothetical example that could in the future grow to a million or more of LTC. So rather than putting $1 million aside where you're going to get 4% from, you're putting the same million aside, but you're risk pooling. I don't understand, Chris, why people don't hesitate to risk pool and protect themselves from auto accidents, loss of homes, medical during their working years before Medicare starts. No problem buying insurance, none whatsoever. And no advisor is going to tell their client, ah, you don't need medical insurance, you don't need auto insurance, your chances of needing auto insurance are crazy, you're wasting your money every year. And homeowners... You're a fool if you own a million-dollar home and insure it. You're never going to need it. I don't see advisors doing that. But I do see, quote-unquote, fiduciary fee-based advisors who just happen to charge an AUM fee and can't make any money off of a SPIA or an LTC policy telling you you are a fool if you go out and buy a SPIA or an LTC policy. You should let them manage your money conveniently for a 1% AUM fee or whatever their fee structure is. And they're going to cover all this. And they're going to show you charts and graphs and growth strategies and, and, and academic studies that prove all this. I disagree. Insurance is risk pooling for expenses or risks or loss potentials that have a very low probability of happening, but a very huge cost if it happens to you. We call that, as the firm and on the podcast, the other guy. And again, I'm not trying to turn this about me, but I am the other guy. I had a massive stroke three years ago. Not only was I the other guy, by having the stroke, I was the other guy by surviving it, and I was only paralyzed for less than 24 hours. The doctor was amazed. 
less than a 1% chance, he said, of me surviving it, for the thrombectomy to have worked, and for me to come out of it with except for losing my ability to, to have penmanship with my left hand because I was paralyzed on my left side and I'm left-handed, except for losing my handwriting. I can't read what I write anymore, folks. It's, I, it's, it's a useless and lost cause. I can't see, understand what I write. That's it. I was the other guy twice. The other guy can happen. And you could be the guy who runs out of money due to sequence of return risk. Or you could be the guy who suffers an LTC event. With a million dollars strategized this way, you could give it to an advisor or do it yourself and take 4% and adjust it for three cola. Or you could put 600000 in a spear that removes any sequence of return risk. And you could take the remaining 400000 spend it on fun. You could take it, use it as a reserve in an all-equity market, broad-based growth investment to keep pace with future inflation. Or you could start withdrawing a little bit from that same market reserve and put 1% or 2% of it into an LTC policy that could pay a million or more of future benefit. Now you see the power of leverage, that's insurance. Yet we are told by fiduciary advisors, you should use insurance for your car, for your auto, for your health, excuse me, car and auto are the same thing, for your home and your health and your boat, if you had a boat, and an umbrella policy in case you're going to be sued, no problem. But don't buy this evil, God-forsaken spear. And don't buy long-term care insurance. Conveniently, just leave it all in one big portfolio and let me charge on it. Okay, I'm going to stop there because now I'm starting to get (laughs) angry. (laughs) But can you see, I don't want to say the brilliance of this because some people it just won't resonate with. But can you understand, Chris, I know you can, but listeners, the concept. That with the same million dollars, you can get a hell of a lot more coverage and protection for whatever you are concerned with. If you're concerned with not spending on fun, you just created $400,000 more to spend on fun. If you're concerned about rampant inflation, you can put $400,000 aside, 40% of your money, put aside, grow it aggressively. There's your inflation protection. If you're concerned about LTC, start withdrawing 1% or 2% a year from that 400000 set aside and leverage it into an LTC policy. None of this requires an advisor charging you 1% of your assets. So my industry hates this strategy. I feel they are not being fiduciaries there. They have a huge conflict. And that is, they want your 1% of assets. Mm-hmm. I'll shut up there. Yep. No, I think this, is, this was revealing to people, just to consider the idea. Not a, again, not everyone's going to be attracted to this particular approach, but the reason why we gravitate towards something like this or some variation of this is that, to us, the minimum dignity floor protections, which is what this is funding, this is not... She wasn't proposing to fund all of her expenses with this approach. This was attacking the minimum dignity floor specifically. That has to be covered as long as you shall live. And that's what makes, even if you're using your own assets and your own withdrawals, so tricky that the money you set aside for that 
is not, even though you didn't hand it over to the insurance company, it's still off limits. You can't touch it because you've already assigned it a job. Uh, each dollar can only do one job effectively in your in your finances during retirement. So if you assign it the job of protecting your minimum dignity floor and it's going to be distributions from this million dollars, it's off limits no matter what. Why not take that same million and find a way to have it do more for you or do things for you that that are uh, more in line with the importance of the minimum dignity floor? You know, um, dis- discretionary spending could, because of its nature, being discretionary, it could more easily be increased, cut, depending on how things are going. You know, some people are more are comfortable with that approach. Hey, we'll kind of ride it, and then, you know, depending on how our portfolio goes, we might adapt a little bit here. You, in our opinion, you can't treat your minimum dignity floor that same way. It requires a more robust, direct set of protections. And and that's why kind of doing this this trade-off analysis, looking at these different approaches, I think everyone needs to do and decide what they what they feel comfortable with. Not that the million dollars wouldn't work. It may very well work. But I think we've shown where it's probably worth considering maybe an alternative approach that, that could give you some some features that you might really like. So with that, we've probably uh gotten to the end of our overstate our welcome overstate our welcome <laughs> a little bit so thanks a lot for for uh joining me remotely again i can't wait to hear well we're going to record another show before friday before the- so i'll have to wait even longer than the next show to to hear about the castle everyone so, knows about it when i talk about mm-hmm. that oh everybody knows they can't believe i haven't been to it yet i didn't even oh. know it existed until you googled it well, there so you go. i i will visit the castle on That's, friday okay. i will fight the black knight if need be and I will get into the castle and take a photo and see what is in there. I, I mean, people have told me it's pretty cool. And yeah. to go check it. And you actually, they said drive through a na- – they said it's really weird. You're driving through a neighborhood, and then all of a sudden, there's the castle. Boom, there's a castle. Yeah. Cool. Well, I can't wait to see it. It's very important to me that you go visit. So <laughs> you, you might have to come out to to Florida just to see it. Not, not to Florida. I'm in Ohio. You may have to come out to No, that's to a Ohio. stretch. That's a stretch. It's not quite that important enough to me. Unless I go out in the fall when it's cooler or something, maybe. Yes. I, I don't see you coming out to Ohio in August. No. But let me tell you, Never right again. now, the weather out here is beautiful. So yeah. you may have to come out okay. with your family in, in the fall okay. uh, with all six of your brood. And uh, come visit the castle. Okay, sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, We'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 